This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. I have been one who loved the wilderness, swaggered and softly crept behind the mountain peaks. I listened long to the sea's brave music. I sang my songs above the shriek of desert winds. On canyon trails when warm night winds were blowing, blowing and sighing gently through the star-tipped pines. Musing, I walked behind my placid burrow, while water rushed and broke on pointed rocks below. I have known a green sea's heaving. I have loved red rocks and twisted trees and cloudless turquoise skies. Slow, sunny clouds and red sand blowing. I have felt the rain and slept behind the waterfall. In cool, sweet grasses I have lain and heard the ghostly murmur of regretful winds in aspen glades, where rustling silver leaves whisper wild sorrows to the green-gold solitudes. I have watched the shadowed clouds pile high. Singing, I rode to meet the splendid, shouting storm and fought its fury till the hidden sun foundered in darkness and the lightning heard my song. Say that I starved, that I was lost and weary, that I was burned and blinded by the desert sun, foot sore, thirsty, sick with strange diseases, lonely and wet and cold, but that I kept my dream. Always I shall be one who loves the wilderness, swaggers and softly creeps between the mountain peaks. I shall listen long to the sea's brave music, I shall sing my song above the shriek of desert winds. Wilderness Song by Everett Ruiz Everett Ruiz, you may ask? Am I supposed to know who that person is? Is he more than just a writer of poetry? To the author Mari Stegner, who dedicated an entire chapter to the man in his Mormon country, wrote of Everett, quote, Everett Ruiz is one of those, a callow romantic, an adolescent aesthete, an atavastic wanderer of the wastelands, but one of the few who died, if he died, with the dream intact. End quote. In 1934, at the age of 20 years old, and after wandering, exploring, and adventuring thousands of miles throughout California, Utah, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado, so basically the American Southwest, after wandering thousands of miles by extended thumb or on foot and on the back of a mule, sometimes a horse, all the while painting and writing and singing, after thousands of miles throughout the American Southwest in California, Everett Ruiz, the ultimate freedom-loving adventurer, traveler, writer, amateur archaeologist, and artist vagabond, who would go on to influence many a later nature lover and writer. But a man you may never have heard of. At 20 years old, Everett Ruiz disappeared. He simply vanishes from the face of the earth. His last known camp was in the wild and wooly Davis Gulch area of the Grand Staircase, Escalante National Monument of Southern Utah, which is a beautiful and a rugged place with Red rocks and twisted trees and gorgeous turquoise skies 
A place filled with secrets and ruins, ghosts and dreams. A place every lover of the American Southwest knows intimately, or should. But don't ever learn it as intimately as ever Ruth got to know it. Our story today, and in this whole series, it focuses on this incredibly inspirational and cautionary tale of this young man who wrote well and adventured freely and lived as so many of us wanderers in strange lands wishes that we could. In Bud Rusho's Vagabond for Beauty, he writes, Everett's story is the universal story of discovery of self. End quote. Everett himself wrote to a friend on one of his many journeys, and he wrote, quote, As to when I shall visit civilization, it will not be soon, I think. I have not tired of wilderness. Rather, I enjoy its beauty and the vagrant life I lead more keenly all the time. End quote. I think, especially if you're listening, we all share that sentiment. That desire to never tire of the wilderness and the vagrant life. The desire to escape into the unknown, at least for a little while. I, too, become more keenly aware of this all the time. Since his disappearance, an almost cult-like group have sprung up in his footsteps, poring over his writings, his artwork, his journal entries, and his many letters. They've traced his footprints and wanderings in the wilderness. They've laid their sleeping bag where he has. They've cast their vision on the same landscapes that he so admired. People have wondered what drove him. What was he thinking? And what was he experiencing? That one, probably the most important. For a while, when these things were in vogue, people thought of him as a mystic. Someone who knew him in 1931, briefly, and whom I will talk about a little later, a man named Pat Jenks, said of him, quote, Ruiz was the most sensitive, the most intuitive person I have ever known. He could certainly see intrinsic and unspeakable beauty to a degree that could not always be put into words. But I can't say whether or not he was a mystic, end quote. Authors, such as the oft- quoted and read by yours truly, the late David Roberts, have, he has even searched for the writer and possible mystic's remains, as we will learn about in the third episode of this series. And in this series, I will quote extensively from Ruiz's own fantastic and beautifully descriptive writings, as well as from some articles, and especially from two books, one of them being David Roberts' Finding Everett Ruiz, and the other is W.L., or Bud, Bud Rusho's Everett Ruiz, A Vagabond for Beauty. But there are other famous authors of the American Southwest that do mention him, like the great Edward Abbey. I will also quote from him. The author of Into the Wild, John Krakauer, learned of Everett Ruiz from David Roberts, while Krakauer was writing his book about Chris McCandless. And if you don't recognize that name, he is the man who shared a similar fate with Everett. Except Chris McCandless's emaciated remains were eventually found in that famous bus in Alaska. While Everett's are still out there. They're still out there somewhere in that place, named after one of the stars of my last series, Escalante. 
I'll outline some of the adventures and misadventures of Everett, the time period he was exploring in, and the people he met. And obviously I'll detail the landscape since I have seen it, and explored it, and misadventured in it myself. Except I'm still here to tell my tales. And tell my tales I will do. I hope you don't mind me interjecting quite a few anecdotes and stories from my own time wandering in this immaculately created landscape that is the American Southwest. Maybe I'll influence some of you to visit. Or help you reminisce the times you already have. This series is more than a biography of Everett and his mystery. It's also a reflection on the act of adventuring itself, and why we do it despite the danger and the potentiality of death. It'll make you grateful for your friends and your family. It'll make you sad. But most of all, this retelling of Everett's tale will absolutely make you want to tear off into the unknown and explore the American Southwest. If you enjoy hearing about grand vistas, the challenge of adventure, resilience in the face of hardships and loneliness, if you like to listen to descriptions of beauty, and if you like a good mystery, this is the series for you. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, please leave a five-star review on the platforms, and most importantly, tell everyone you know about this podcast and how every episode makes you want to explore the American Southwest. Without further ado, The Cult of Everett Ruiz. The cult of Everett Ruiz is not one that he started himself. No, that is, this is not that kind of story. The cult is one that has grown up around his works, his life, and indeed, trying to find the last clues he left at the end of his short but sweet adventure. That was his life. Sometime after his disappearance, his father would write, He has truly lived, and more than most people do in a century. End quote. The mystery of his life and death that swirls and surrounds Everett Ruiz like a wind through the gnarled trees of the Colorado Plateau, that mystery is the key to the myth and the cult. But Everett's life is what keeps the cult going. David Roberts, the late author I have read for many episodes, and an author I will read for future ones as well, because like I have said before, we apparently enjoyed the same things. Well, Roberts said of the cult in his Finding Everett Ruiz, quote, The Ruiz cult ultimately springs from the young man's ecstatic vision of the wilderness, tied to an insatiable wanderlust that drove him to one solitary challenge and ordeal after another, 
as he traversed the deserts and canyons of what in the 1930s was the wildest landscape in the United States. End quote. Much like previous episodes, though, when I discussed the distortion and caricature of Pueblo life, and that how that defines Pueblo mystique, Everett's story also suffers from Ruiz mystique. I mean, even the name Ruiz. It is honestly unknown if it was originally pronounced as Rus, like Kievan Rus, or Ruiz, which is the way I will pronounce it. I knew nothing of Everett Ruiz until I was prompted to pick up a book about him in Moab, and I am so grateful that this woman pointed it out. Despite having read his name in books by Edward Abbey and a couple others, me, Thomas Wayne Riley, the host, the speaker of all things Southwest, the non-historian history writer and non-practicing archaeologist speaker on archaeology, I, who have explored more of the Southwest than anyone I personally know, if I didn't know the cult of Everett Ruiz, I mean, is it really all that mystified? I mean, how big can the cult be? Is the Ruiz mystique as veiled and hidden behind half-truths and legends and falsehoods as is Pueblo mystique? Well, the more I read about him and his story and the cult, the more I thought, actually, no. I think Everett's life and story is exceptionally interesting, and I believe if he had continued to live, he would have served even more as an inspiration to those who learn about him or come into contact with him. His writing is beautiful. And his art is, is gorgeous, especially for his age. His adventures, though, that is what lies at the heart of the mystique. And they are glorious adventures. The brightest stars burn the fastest. Maybe part of his inexplicable life can be blamed on the fact that uh, he was born in the beautiful but strange place of California. Oakland, to be exact. He was born in the year 1914 to very artsy and religious parents. And, and their names were Christopher and Stella Ruiz. And I love the name Stella. I actually named my first motorcycle Stella. I mentioned earlier that even the last name is a mystery. Today, relatives apparently say both pronunciations, Rus and Ruiz. It's probable, and this can attest to the artsiness of Stella, but it's probably pronounced Rus, but because she wanted it to be prettier, she pronounced it Ruiz. Everett also had an older brother named Waldo. From the very beginning, Everett and the Ruises were deeply pursuant of art. They made poetry, Stella taught the boys to paint watercolor, and they even had a family motto that went, quote, Glorify the hour. And it was accompanied by a sundial that Stella had created. It's a rather good motto, really. Beyond just making art, poetry, music, and mottos together, Everett's parents, Christopher and Stella, would actually be deeply involved in their boys' lives. Stella, specifically. She would have a profound impact on Everett. Her life philosophy was that one must participate in art to be truly alive. She clearly would pass that on to her wandering son. 
and he truly was a wanderer, even from the very beginning. At three years old, Everett walked over a mile and over a bridge and some railroad tracks before the police were called in to find Stella's missing son. The police would tell her, though, not to worry, because he had already been reported. Later, he'd escape his father, but that next time he'd walk himself to the police station. After that incident, it seems Stella would tie Everett to objects to keep him in place, like a dog on a chain. Sometimes it was the porch railing that she would tie him to. Sometimes it was a chair. Or sometimes it was a tree by the creek where they learned to swim. At night, to keep him from stealing away into the darkness, Everett's parents would tie his feet together in bed. Stella would write in her journal that Everett so in love with walking and wandering, had even named his feet. Jerry and Jupiter. They had a mind of their own. Speaking of names, Everett's parents apparently gave him 33 nicknames. And that, that was just the ones that were recorded in the family's diaries and journals. Among them were some greatest hits like Bounceritis, Leonardo da Vinci Everett, and The Amazing Lord of Misrule. From California, whenever it was just four years old, the family moved all the way across the continent to Massachusetts. But it wouldn't last too long. All the while, Everett and his brother Waldo remained inseparable, even though the two were quite different in temperament and personality and dang near everything else. And they would remain close throughout their entire lives. During one of Everett's journeys, he'd write to Waldo, who he hadn't heard from in a while, and say, quote, Whenever I think of you, I feel glad to have a brother like you. End quote. From Massachusetts, they next headed to New York, and then New Jersey. In New Jersey, in 1920 by now, Everett was enrolled in a prestigious art school where he learned wood carving and pottery making. In 1923, in an adventure that may have sparked his love of the American Southwest, the family traveled by car from New Jersey all the way to California on account of Stella's father having been taken ill. On this massive trip, they visited the Grand Canyon and the Sierra Nevadas, two places he would return to quite a few times. It seems at nine years old, the impression that the Grand Canyon in Yosemite left on him would last for his entire short lifetime. In 1924, the family would move to Indiana. His father at that time worked in Chicago, 50 miles away. Despite that long drive, though, he was not an absent father. And he could not wait for his two boys to grow up, marry a righteous woman, and become moral men. Or as Christopher called it, PGs, perfect gentlemen. He was actually a very bright man who had graduated from Harvard in only three years, and he was quite fluent in philosophy and theology. The whole family was quite the quartet, really. At ten years old, Everett discovered that he could roam freely the trails and the forests that surrounded his Indiana home. These hadn't existed around his New England homes, so they infinitely fascinated him. And on these trails, he would become obsessed with all things nature, including insects and mammals, and also all things American Indian. Already, 
By 11 years old, Everett was an exciting and adventurous kid. He wrote about ding-dong ditching and honking car horns on the street. Back then, you didn't lock your cars or even roll up your windows. So that means a little annoying punks would come by and honk the horns and run away. I do miss having a high-trust society, I will say that. During this time, around 11 years old, he had a turtle that he would name Prince Crawlaway II, just to give you an idea of his imagination. And also during this time, Everett would be punished for mischief and told to stay in as a punishment. But in his journal, he wrote, quote, I forgot all about it, end quote. Nothing in life would make him stay in. In 1926, his father, his wise father, noticed this obsession with the outdoors and wrote in a letter to Everett, quote, You have a good mind. Now you need to observe people as you observe things and learn to make many friends. Try to please people. You are a little like your daddy, who gets so interested in ideas at times that he is absent-minded about people. That is bad, because people have feelings. End quote. Everett would never truly learn this lesson, and for the rest of his years, which are less than ten, he would not quite master the art of understanding people's feelings. I will read plenty of quotes from him to that effect uh, shortly throughout these episodes. So as I just mentioned, Everett was obsessed with Indians, and especially arrowheads. In 1927, at age 13, he would write a poem called The Relic, which he wrote about finding one of these arrowheads. And it's a rather good poem for such a young man. I will read it for you. In a deserted field I found an arrowhead, worn by the rains and snows of many a year. It had survived its maker, buried here. For he who shot the arrow from his bow was dead. How far this chiseled piece of stone leads back the mind. By careful Indian craftsmen it was wrought. For many purposes had it been sought. To me it was a very precious treasure find. See? Pretty good for a 13-year-old. I mean, I was writing poetry at 13 and it was nowhere near that good, I can tell you that. And also, not to sound too jealous of Everett, but I have somehow never found an arrowhead. I mean, a complete one. I've found plenty of incomplete or broken arrowheads, but never a complete, perfect arrowhead. And all my wanderings through northern Georgia, Oklahoma, and the entirety of the American Southwest, I have yet to find a single, complete, full arrowhead. Thousands of miles walked, probably, and nothing. Plenty of other amazing and awe-inspiring finds, I will say that. And more potsherds that I left in place, of course, than I can imagine. But those arrowheads, they escape me. Although I do have a hookup, I think I can get lucky one of these days. Another piece from this time period that is extremely interesting, and rather prescient, was a short story he titled Vultures. And again, like the poem, it's pretty good for a 13-year-old. It starts out, A man lay sprawled on the stinging hot sand beneath a twisted Joshua tree in the desert. Its crooked shade made a fantastic pattern and fell in sultry stripes across his weary body. The shadow moved, and with a tired lurch, the man moved his head into a band of shade. 
And the third paragraph is as follows. The man was an artist. He had come here to die, or to recover his lost ambitions. His sensitive eyes roved over the unreal landscape, the barren wastes of sand, the desert cliffs, the bleak bent cactus trees darkly outlined against the moon, over which there passed a ghostly wraith of cloud. But the artist's soul was dead within him. The weird beauty was not reflected in his face, stoical and hopeless. You see, the artist is searching for some enlightenment in the end here, an epiphany of sorts. And he does find it. The story continues. Though he had not found the inspiration he sought, the desire to live was suddenly reawakened. Tortured flesh complained insistently and would not be denied. In sudden frenzy, he turned about and began in tottering haste to retrace his way. But it is too late for our wanderer here. He is out of water, and it is now day three. He has nowhere to go, but up a butte which he crawls on to die. He then witnesses a huge rainstorm erupt across the landscape everywhere except for on him, of course. The story continues. The rain passed, leaving the desert glorious and cool. As the vultures poised in the air and came to tear him to pieces, he looked toward the horizon. All that was left on his anguish now vanished, and a light shone in his eyes, as he saw the dying sun flood the wastelands with splendor. The last thing he saw was the burnished bronze of a vulture's wings, glinting in the sunlight as it snatched his eyes out. He did not feel the pain. A moment later, the blood-hued sunset passed swiftly to night. End quote. I mean, talk about your foreshadowing. Talk about the darkness of a 13-year-old. I mean, just the, his sensitive eyes roved over the unreal landscape, the barren wastes of sand, the desert cliffs, the bleak, bent cactus trees darkly outlined against the moon over which passed a ghostly wraith of cloud. I mean, that's something that he will almost mirror in later letters. In 1928, the family would move yet again, this time to Los Angeles. It's not a move I suggest for any of my listeners, but at that time, I imagine the city was an immensely different place. Well, you know what? I bet it wasn't immensely different. It probably wasn't all that different than it is today, just less people. Two years later, so now it's 1930, whenever it was 16 and attending Hollywood High, he would begin his very first adventure and it would set the precedent for all future excursions into the wild and wooly unknown. It wouldn't be an adventure to the southwest, though. This one was a journey through California, mostly on the Pacific coast of that yet untainted state. He had decided he was going to hitchhike up the Pacific Coast Highway from Los Angeles to Carmel, which is just south of Monterey Bay, which is the place that the Padres of Escalante and Dominguez never made it to. Monterey Bay is also just south of San Francisco. Rusho wrote of the purpose of Everett's journeys, beyond just seeing the landscape at least. Whenever Rue was headed into the mountains or out into the desert, he did so with two overall objectives. First, he wanted to absorb impressions, to experience, even to revel in natural scenes. Second, 
He wished to record the scenes, either visually, in sketches or watercolors, or in his writings. End quote. So, off Everett goes to see and absorb and record, while still a student and only 16, off he goes hitchhiking up the Cali coast 40 years at least before this would become popular among a certain long-haired group of people, addicts. When he reaches the city of Carmel, the first thing he does is walk straight up to the studio of the, at the time, famous photographer, Edward Weston. He knocks on the door with no shame and introduces himself to the legend. Now, I was not sure who Edward Weston was prior to reading about Edward, so naturally, I had to look him up. What I found were a bevy of beautiful black and white photographs. Many of them were close-ups of seashells and even bell peppers. But absolutely beautiful and striking photographs. Leaves, pomegranates, twisted trees, nude women, incredible landscapes of sand dunes and the desert. They're beautiful photos. I don't blame the young Everett for tracking down their creator, even if by some rather unconventional means. Weston, though, would invite him to dinners and invite him even to stay in their garage. And all the while, Everett would play with his sons, so it all worked out for him in the end, it seems. Clearly, this excursion was a warm-up for his later ones. He was only 16, after all. Sure, that meant a bit more before the infantilization of our young adults that has destroyed or at least hampered adulthood for us now, but still. He was in high school, and he still depended highly on his parents. And he would depend on them for everything, from books to food to money, right up until his final excursion, really. From the ocean, he'd write to his parents, I slept in the middle of a pocket in the sand dunes, building my fire just at dusk. And then, in the morning, my blankets were very wet with fog and dew. End quote. While in Carmel, Everett worked as a caddy at a golf course to make some money for food, but after three weeks, he hitchhiked up into Big Sur, which I read in Robert's book was not very heavily traveled back then in the 1920s. What I wouldn't give to be exploring these lands, as they were at least back then, right? Wouldn't we all? I think I've said that in like every podcast episode I've done so far. Man, what it would have been like to be back then. And you can't help but think that people in the future will look back and say, oh, I wish I could have seen this back then. While he was up there, though, he continued to work odd jobs, sleep on the beach, hike the hills and forests, sleep among the pines, and paint many a scene using watercolors. Here's another scene he eloquently spells out for his parents and brother in a letter. So I slid and slipped and tumbled down the mountain till came to a valley at the bottom, through which a small stream meandered. At the beach there were large quantities of driftwood, probably from some wreck. I ate my lunch perched on the arch of a small cave, under which the sea came splashing in. Below me were many brown seaweeds, waving their strands with every motion of the sea and writhing like octopi. End quote. But something was stirring in him. This just wasn't wild enough. He needed more. So he hitchhiked east, towards Yosemite. Maybe he was remembering that trip from seven years prior. 
Maybe it had uh, awakened in him a desire to visit. August 5th. Dear family, Yesterday night at sunset, I arrived in Yosemite. The valley hardly seemed real at first. End quote. Once at Yosemite, he would hike a lot. He would also get the chance to listen to the bagpipes that were being played by a Scotchman, as he called them. He didn't like their sound very much. He'd notice the deer were as tame as dogs, and he'd comment that he better not let the bears find his bacon. He'd also hike to many beautiful-sounding lakes and the high Sierras that were topped with patches of snow, even in August. At one point, Everett met two other people that were visiting the park, and they'd straight up... Well, let, let him tell you, it's crazy and dangerous, but... Yeah, I don't think you get away with it these days. The three of us then took a log and industriously pried away at a large boulder at the edge. It finally slid off, and with a great flurry of sparks from the friction, it crashed down. There was a short silence, and it struck the ground far below, crashing through the brush and over some trees. End quote. I mean, it does sound like a lot of fun. I do not recommend rolling and crashing large boulders off high cliffs in any mountains anywhere lest somebody below meets a pancake fate. I couldn't imagine getting caught doing that today. I got yelled at a few weeks ago for leaving a skillet and some plates out in the middle of the day at our campsite in the desert. A ranger just said, oh, this is just not how you camp. Come on, man. It was kind of pathetic. And what people get worked up about is like, come on. This does remind me, this rolling of the boulder, it does remind me of something that I read, I don't remember, maybe in the lead up to this or maybe just on my own. But on a side tangent here, Yosemite, every night in the summers at 9 p.m. from 1878 to 1968 used to do something called the Firefall. I guess Yosemite didn't do it like the park, but the owners of the Glacier Point Hotel would put on this show. Every night in the summer, they'd gather an enormous amount of embers and logs and brush and head up the arduous path to the very famous Glacier Point. Once there, they'd light these trees and brush on fire, this big fire, and then they'd just kick it over the side where it would tumble and everyone would would witness what looked like a waterfall of fire, hence firefall. Even President Kennedy witnessed it, although they did delay it 30 minutes for him. Since it was an unnatural occurrence and probably dangerous and probably, I mean, could easily cause a wildfire, they put a stop to it. I have no doubt, though, that ever it uh, probably saw it. This firefall at Yosemite. One of the nights while he was there, he'd excitedly set up camp, but it would prove to be a disastrous night's sleep. And I can absolutely feel for his anguish during this night's sleep, too. Here's what he wrote of the experience. At first, it was so hot that my blankets were covered with sweat, but I had to swathe my face in a towel to keep out a few of the millions of mosquitoes. Burrs got stuck to my blankets. After a fitful night's sleep, I woke up in the hot sunshine and found that thousands of ants were swarming through my pack. End quote. Uh, like I said, I can attest to how mosquitoes can ruin a night of sleep. During my very first solo trip westward, 
oh, almost a decade ago, my goodness, in 2014, on my first night, I slept at Bottomless Lakes State Park east of Roswell in New Mexico. I had no tent because I just wanted to sleep in the bed of my truck under the endless stars, the many planets, and the bright band of the Milky Way. I wanted to enjoy the breezes in the air and being in the Wild West. But as soon as the beautifully violent tornado-spawning thunderstorm that night and its strong winds and endless lightning once that blew away and left the scene heading east towards the Panhandle and the Llano Estacado, once the beautiful storm had passed, a massive swarm of millions of mosquitoes descended upon me with infinite zest and zeal. I mean, my goodness, it was the most miserable night of sleep. Still probably to this day, I had the same problem. I was pouring sweat in my sleeping bag, which kept the pests away, and then I'd have to get air and dry my face, but they'd return again with vengeance buzzing in my ear and seriously just landing immediately on my face as soon as I would wipe away. And then repeat, cover up, sweat, let the air in, over and over, repeat until eventually I just slept in the captain's chair of the truck, but only for a few hours. It was, it was miserable. And as for ants, I at once woke from a nap in a field on the outskirts of the jungles of Belize with a line of fire ants going across my stomach. I escaped without a single bite somehow, but it was discomforting to say the least. At this time, Everett was, 16 as I mentioned, hitchhiking all over the California landscape. He'd disappear at only 20 years old, but in his young life, it's curious that he never learned how to drive. Because he had to rely on his thumb and his friends and family or his feet. And, you know, many, many mounts that he will cycle through. I suppose that's part of his charm, though. He traveled so extensively and so thoroughly without a vehicle. I mean, maybe that does help explain how he was able to be so free. Regardless, I'm never giving up my truck. At Yosemite, he'd hang out with the many other tourists, which were already there. Even in 1930, he'd also get into serious shape through all this hiking he's doing. He'd find arrowheads made of obsidian. He'd pocket them, naturally. Of the time he spent there, he said, quote, I sleep quite well on the ground here and don't mind it at all. I could very happily keep up this life indefinitely if I had the money. End quote. You and me both, brother. You and me both. By the third week of August, he had worn down the soles of his shoes to quote-unquote paper. His socks were full of holes. His blankets were too heavy, but he couldn't afford a $15 sleeping bag. Life as a vagabond was tough work. The entire time he continued to meet people, though, in Yosemite, despite his love of the lonesome trail, he met Okies, insurance salesmen from L.A., Australians, and even homesteaders living off the land after the onset of the Great Depression. While there in Yosemite, he'd write, quote, It seems that my ambitions are always to be allied with the A's, artist, author, archaeologist, and adventurer. Lately, the arrowheads have preceded the art, but I expect to get back to sketching quickly. End quote. On this verse journey, he would learn the valuable lesson of having a light load. At this time, his pack weighed 50 pounds. 
and it oftentimes cut off the circulation to his arms and fingers, so much so that he couldn't tie his shoes or even unbuckle his back. Another lesson that he learns in Yosemite, although he doesn't get to actually like act it out, but another lesson that he learns is that you can rent a burrow for $1.50 a day, or buy one outright for $15. And those guys can haul. And they're smarter than horses. Well, maybe not smarter, but they're less prone to suicidal flailings. Eventually, though, he did have to return home to his parents and to finish high school. He was definitely dreading that part. But at least he would graduate in 1931 at 16 years old. Despite his parents hoping he would soon go to college after graduation, Everett immediately set out on his second adventure. That's my man. That's what I'm talking about. He had graduated in January, so in early February, Everett packed his bags and stuck out his thumb. Except this time, he was going east, to the American Southwest. Here's David Roberts to sum up the beginning of this solo trip. The rides he got from strangers amounted to a cross-country adventure in its own right. A Buick 8, driven at 75 miles an hour by an old man with a dog. A lift in a potato truck. A harrowing lift from a couple of Long Beach toughs who drove through the night without headlights and kept running out of gas. And a final jaunt over a very wild road from Flagstaff to Kayenta in the car of an Indian mail carrier. End quote. Good to know that road is still as wild and rough as it has been for 90 years. I'd recently, my wife and I just drove on that road and it is just bumpy. But... Everett's adventure does sound like quite the series of events. I've hitchhiked once before, and it was only out of necessity. I was riding my motorcycle from Oklahoma City, where I lived at the time, to Eagle, Colorado, where my friend and college roommate was working for the Forest Service. I decided to take state highways, until Denver at least, instead of doing the I-35 to I-70, This was all well and good and prettier, except the little two-lane highway in the panhandle of Oklahoma. It got me so close to passing trucks, both of us doing 70 miles an hour in the Oklahoma wind, which does indeed come sweeping down the plains. These trucks like to blow me clear off my bike. The very first time I passed one, head-on, I nearly did lose my balance and let fly right off. Almost lost my balance and my life. I quickly learned after that to duck when a truck passes. After crossing over into Colorado from Boise City, the bustling town of Boise City, I saw a small little rainburst of a storm straight ahead, miles away. But I figured I'd intercept it if the road didn't turn, which it didn't. It was June and it was over 100 degrees, so I relished the idea of a cool wet ride before the blow dryer air sapped the moisture right off me again. So I unzipped my leather and welcomed the air and rain, only for me to drive into a swarm of bees, which stung me at least six times, some of them in my armpits, on my chest. At the next gas station, I screeched to a halt, leapt off my bike, and tore off my jacket, all the while like swearing and jumping and stomping on bees. I got me some ice cream from inside to make me feel a little better, and I thanked my lucky stars I wasn't allergic to bees. And then I got back on my bike and kept driving. What I did not do was fill up. I then drove north towards I-70, 
getting about 50 miles or so before realizing I need a gas. Uh, and I would have if it hadn't been for those pesky bees. So, you know, a lot of motorcycles don't have gas gauges on the tank. You just have an internal one. And mine was flashing empty behind my eyelids. So I approached the town of Mustang, which was coming up. And I was like, yes, that's good. But no gas. No nothing except like a trailer for the USPS. That was it. Kit Carson was the next town. And surely that would have some gas, but nope. And then it happened. And I sputtered to a stop on the side of the highway. I left my jacket on my bike, but carried my helmet as if to say like, hey, I'm hitchhiking. I'm the guy that left the bike back there. Again, it was over 100 as I set out towards the next town, which I would learn was 26 miles away. I was hot and I was thirsty and a little embarrassed and my thumb was out. I mean, I didn't actually walk very long because thankfully a trucker in a little box truck pulled over and picked me up and I was thankful and all he said was, can I borrow your cell phone? I mean, I was surprised I still had service out there. I think it was like a razor or something. I said, sure, and handed it over. And then he spoke on it to his Jamaican buddies the entire time until he dropped me off at the gas station. He thanked me. And then he handed back the phone and off he was. He was gone. I was like, well, that was easy. Didn't even have to talk. And the ride back was actually even easier. A sheriff deputy from North Dakota or Montana or somewhere, maybe Wyoming, I can't remember. Uh, he picked me up and took me to my bike and that was it. I think I got pretty lucky. Everett, too, would get lucky. Pretty much every time he stuck out his thumb. The day before Valentine's Day, February 13th of that year, 1931, Everett, after those harrowing and interesting but ultimately fun-sounding hitchhiking adventures, he was ready to begin the next leg of his journey. And that would be in Cayenta, Arizona. That place today, Cayenta, is near the heart of Navajo Nation. Just like it was back then, I suppose. I only ever drive through Cayenta, though. I love Agatha Peak, which sits just outside of town as you head towards Monument Valley. I've pulled over and taken many a picture of the volcanic relic. On a later adventure, Everett would even paint it. He'd also say of it, quote, The longer I know it, the more I like it. If I were wealthy, I'd build a castle like it. End quote. A picture of Agatha Peak will be at the site for this page. Or at the site for this episode. Everett's first goal was to purchase a burrow, which he had realized in Yosemite were the much easier and smarter way of getting around than just on your feet, with a heavy pack. But first he had a few illusions about Native Americans shattered. He was quite surprised at how poor the Navajo were at the time, and remarked that the average family lived on $13.40 a year. He also thought, that the Navajo were dishonest and prone to thieving. Although that view would change with time, except the thieving part. Apparently the entire time he was out there, a game that the Navajos would play would be to distract him and then take his stuff and then laugh when they got caught, but I don't know. While he was staying in Kiginta, he was using a Navajo Hogan. Although how he was able to snag that is unknown since they aren't meant to be shared with outsiders and sometimes aren't ever meant to be used again if someone dies in them. Also there, he bought a burrow, finally, for only $6, which was much less than the $15 at Yosemite. He named the burrow Everett, 
and he himself would change his name. He would name the borough after himself, and he would change his name. I would say he did this for some strange reason, but he was a 16-year-old, and he had quite the imagination, and he spent a lot of time outdoors alone. So he had plenty of time to think and reflect on all that he had studied and read, and he loved to read. So it is here when Everett Ruiz uses his imagination to create his first, first of at least three, pseudonyms. He chooses out of the blue to begin calling himself and signing his letters as Lan Ramio. As if Everett Ruiz wasn't already a strange enough name, Lan Ramio was the one that he chose. To help explain the significance of this name to y'all, I will just quote from Roberts because he does a good job. As others have pointed out, Lane is French for the donkey. It also has, as a second meaning, the ass or the idiot, suggesting a self-deprecatory joke on Everett's part. Remio may have been a nod to the 18th century composer Jean-Philippe Remio, for since childhood Everett has been passionate about classical music, End quote. That passion for classical music and all music will only get stronger, but apparently forever tis his family and his friends were not sure of what to make of this second name, which he wrote to them insisting on them using and not his given name, like in their letters. It's possible that the discomfort he had in using his own name was the first of quite a few hints of Everett's more melancholic and sad side, as some have suggested... But I think it may have just been mere fun, and when he was out in the wilderness, where he truly felt alive and free and happy, he felt like a different person. I think he hadn't quite squared up the boy that sits in school and at home with his parents, who have always been a very important part of his life. He hadn't connected the fact that the way he felt outdoors on a lone trail and in who he was in the city, I don't think he squared up that they were the same person. That being said, he does indeed become quite the brooding and melancholic young man sometimes, as all young men do, for however brief a time. In a letter to a good friend, a friend who will pop up a lot in the series, this friend's name being Bill Jacobs, well, in a letter to Bill, he wrote, quote, As to my pen name, although it is really a brush name, I am still in turmoil but I think that I will heroically stand firm in the face of all misunderstandings and mispronunciations. I'll simply have to lead a dual existence. The name is Lan Remyo, and the friend who helped me select it thought it was quite euphonic and distinctive. Personally, I felt that anything was better than Ruiz. End quote. I don't know how many nicknames and pen names I gave myself when I was younger and writing horrible poetry and Bad James Bond plots, short stories. And I also couldn't stand my last name. And I knew it was phony and adopted. I mean, now I don't mind it at all. And my wife likes it, so that's what matters, really. I only say all of this because sometimes the cult can confuse and create like secret meanings with Everett, just being a kid. I mean, a very intelligent and imaginative kid. But still, just a kid. As to his first weeks in Arizona in February of 1931, he claimed the weather had been quote-unquote atrocious, with wind and rain, snow, hail, ice, and heavy lead-colored clouds. 
He is on the Colorado Plateau in the winter, after all. If you'll recall the weather the Padres had in October just to the west of this spot, then you'll understand. I've been to this area in December, January, March, and April, and I've seen it all. I mean, it's still always beautiful. And to Everett, he wrote to his family that, quote, The territory, however, is all that I hoped it would be, end quote. Everett didn't let this weather stop him from being excited at the prospect of exploring the Four Corners and the American Southwest. And much like the reasons I began going out west myself, he was there to explore and search the Anasazi ruins. His fascination with all things Indian hadn't wavered. It had, as it always does with those who catch the bug, but it had probably only strengthened in Kayenta, he even got to trade one of his watercolors for an Anasazi bowl. Remember, Kayenta is a Navajo town, and the Navajo are not descendants of the Anasazi or ancestral Puebloans. And outside of a few oral traditions, it's unlikely the two groups ran into each other in the past. They may have. I go back and forth on that. But especially at that time a hundred years ago, the Navajo had no compunctions with giving away that old Anasazi stuff. That Anasazi stuff that had bad spirits associated with it. Also, while in Kayenta, Everett ran into John Wetherill, the man I spoke of during my Ancient One series who discovered for the Anglos Mesa Verde and Rainbow Bridge. He'd also find and excavate a ton of other ruins. And yes, like I have said before, I will be doing an episode on he and his family, um, but probably not until after I revisit the Anasazi in a while. In Kayenta, the 64-year-old explorer and discoverer and amateur archaeologist was glad to share all his knowledge with the precocious 16-year-old. He told him where ruins were and how to look for ruins and canyons and how to climb and the best way to see and explore them. He even drew him a map. Lucky Everett. Except looking for ruins may have been his undoing. May have. Unfortunately, the journal Everett kept has been lost to history. Frustratingly so. But his letters to his friends and family remain, thankfully. And this won't be the last lost journal. And by lost, as I will cover later after his disappearance... So as in Lost, many people will come forward to promise certain things, and one of them will be to write a book about Everett, so his family just mails this man this 1931 journal. And as of 2023, it remains hidden from the public. In those surviving letters, though, Everett tells that he learns that a poster he entered into an art competition had won $25, which is great because in that first month, he'd already bought the burrow, a Dutch oven, a sack, some rope, and food. He was pretty much out of money. He is, truthfully, always running out of money, aren't we all? He also wrote that since he couldn't buy bread in Navajo land, he had perfected making, quote, squaw bread, cornbread, and biscuits in my Dutch oven. Yesterday, the biscuits were perfect, end quote. He'd also, in that letter, ask for more bread, peanut butter, pop, and grape nuts, as they were, quote, unobtainable luxuries in this country, end quote. He would ask 
for a lot of things from his parents the entire time he is out there adventuring. Well, at least until his final excursion. He'd write to his friend Bill, quote, Day by day, the questionable virtue of poverty has approached me. End quote. It does seem, although the letters from his parents and friends have not survived, probably on account of he didn't want to carry them around everywhere he went, and they probably honestly ended up in fires, but it does seem that his parents began to worry about him a little. I say that because in one letter he wrote, quote, As for hunting for me with Dorinda, which was their family car, I don't believe you could get the car here. It would sink in the sand rattle to pieces on the rocks, get stuck in a river bottom, slide off a cliff, or run out of gas miles from a service station. End quote. I mean, I do understand his parents' worry, but he is also right about the car. Even with my high-clearance four-wheel drive truck, the landscape off the paved roads in the American Southwest can be demanding on a vehicle. And it was probably even worse back then. Just this July... I punctured a tire in the Chiricahua Mountains of Southeast Arizona. If it weren't for amazingly kind and helpful locals, it would have been a day ruiner. And not just a tire killer. With Everett, though, it's hard not to think of him as like just a little selfish with the letters when he's asking for things and for money. Roberts writes about this point when he said, quote, Everett's vagabondage during a time of such widespread poverty, combined with his material dependence on his parents, hints at a streak of self-indulgence fueled by a sense of entitlement. End quote. This was, after all, the Great Depression, a time when wages were reduced, workers were laid off, investments ceased, people were hungry, homeless, penniless. Everett was lucky his family had steady income and steady income enough to send him what he asked for and more every time he asked. Apparently Everett and Waldo would even quarrel over this matter and in a long letter to Waldo, Everett would call him a cop-out and say that his work was totally unnecessary. At this time, Waldo was working for the Fleischmann's Yeast Company and as a husband who loves my wife's homemade bread which she bakes using that same yeast company, I would argue that Waldo's work was actually necessary. Necessary then, just as it would be now. Everett wrote to his brother, quote, I feel that you are worthy of a better position than the present one. The idea put forward by some that all necessary work is honorable and beautiful because it must be done means nothing to me. As far as I am concerned, your work is quite unnecessary, since I can keep very healthy without Fleischmann's yeast. I myself would sooner walk a whole day behind the burrow than spend two hours in the streetcar. End quote. Mm. Waldo is absolutely right. All necessary work is honorable work and beautiful. In that same letter to Waldo, Everett also adds, quote, I am very glad not to be home where civilized life thrusts the thought of money upon one from all sides. With an adequate stock of provisions, I can forget the cursed stuff or blessed stuff, for days and weeks at a time. Your censure was quite deserved in regard to providing my needs, but remember that I have asked for no money, and that most of the equipment I asked for was unprocurable here, and necessary to my life. End quote. He may not have asked for money yet, but he does, many, many times in the future, 
and his parents will always send it. His older brother is right to scold him a little, but the scolding would make no difference to Everett. He wouldn't change his mind, nor his plans, and it wouldn't hurt his feelings. And honestly, their relationship as brothers and friends stays strong throughout the rest of Everett's life. His true desire for this southwestern trip, though, like I said earlier, was so that Everett could discover Anasazi sites that no white American had ever seen. Hence, this meeting with the Weather Rails. And I'm pretty sure he just walked up to their door, like he did with the uh, Weston. Even by the 1930s, though, finding untouched sites was tough. He would start where John Weatherill pointed out, though, and that was Monument Valley, and then Segi Canyon. On March 9th, Everett would write to that friend Bill Jacobs and say, quote, I am going to pack up my burrow and take a jaunt through Monument Valley to a row of cliffs I know of, explore every box canyon, and discover some prehistoric cliff dwellings. Don't laugh. Maybe you thought they were all discovered, but such is not the case. Most of the country is untouched. Only the Navajos have been there, and they are superstitious. In the event that I find nothing, I shall do some painting and have some interesting camps. End quote. Near Monument Valley, on the eastern side, there are certain sites that lay in alcoves among bends in a certain row of cliffs, which one can visit if they receive a permit from the Navajo Nation to explore the land. But sometimes those amazing sites are off-limits to non-Navajos. And sometimes the people exploring don't know that they are off-limits to non-Navajos. And although they have a permit, and though that permit would work for everywhere, they thought, that is not the case. Sometimes people put up pictures and videos of these cool ruins that they should not have visited, but they didn't know that. And they are scolded in the comments by Navajos about how those ruins are off-limits and should not be visited. So the person who put them up, uh, I have to take them down. Man, that happens to some theoretical people who love and explore the vast American Southwest. At this time, though, in the 1930s, nothing was off-limits for Anglos or non-Navajos, so Everett got to explore until his heart was content. Honestly, no one in the United States at that time really even knew about Monument Valley to begin with. Roberts makes the point that since the endless string of westerns filmed at Monument Valley had yet to be shot and released, the area was virtually unknown to America. It isn't really a mystery how Everett knew to go there, though, because I imagine Weatherill told him. Roberts would write of Monument Valley, quote, Navajos lived among the monumental geological formations, as had the Anasazi before them, but the sole permanent Anglo presence was the trading post established by Harry Goulding in 1924. It would not be until John Ford shot the film Stagecoach in Monument Valley in 1938 that the place got pasted onto the tourist map. Only in 1958 did it become an official tribal park. End quote. By the way, if you ever visit or stay at Monument Valley, Goulding's absolutely is a must visit. I have stayed there twice, and both times I woke up early before sunrise to watch it. Watch it rise on the monuments and the mittens, which you can see from your balcony. And those sunrises have been breathtaking. Truly rewarding. The sunsets as well. Obviously, I'm sure the Navajo Hotel would be even better, but at their prices, I have yet to stay. 
for Everett. Coyotes, winds, and snowstorms made his first visit of Two Nights of the Valley a miserable adventure. He even called it a, quote, gloomy, sunless place, end quote. <gasps> How rude. But if you've listened to me or read my short story up at the site, I also despise the desert haze, the dishwater days gloom that can sometimes roll in over the Colorado Plateau. I find it worse than the extended cloudiness of the upper Midwest I experienced for weeks on end in Wisconsin. Maybe it's because expectations are ruined when Mother Nature turns on you. Everett would blasphemously name Monument Valley Gloom Canyon. It wasn't just the bad weather that was troubling him, though. On top of the gloominess, his burrow was acting up and being stubborn. At one point, Everett, the burrow, not Everett the boy, but Everett the burrow refused to go with the pack on him, and he just sat in the middle of the path. Plus, the water hole he was hoping for was dry, and then the next one was filthy and covered with scum, and the coyotes yipping and howling kept him awake all night. His watercolors were turning to ice, which made it obviously impossible to paint. And to top it all off, quote, All the ruins I saw had been investigated before, end quote. To epitomize his troubles, here's a quote from the boy himself. After sunset, I kept going, trying to reach an old Navajo Hogan, of which I knew. Finally, I tied the burrow to a tree and floundered around in the darkness and sand hills until I found the Hogan. Then I couldn't find the burrow. Then I couldn't find the Hogan. After locating Everett, after two more searches for each, I made camp with the burrow. A flying spark burnt a hole in my pack sack. My knife got lost somehow. End quote. Without the tough times, there would be no fun times. And later Everett would pretty much write that exact same thing. The boy, not the donkey. Later, he would talk much more lovingly about the area when he would write, quote, This country suits me nearly to perfection. End quote. Amen, brother. And then to add a further amen, quote, The only things I miss are a loyal friend to share my delights and miseries and good music. End quote. Seriously, Everett and I would have been best friends. That is also why I am so glad my wife loves sharing my adventures with me. I mean, she's not quite as daring or hardy on the trails I am, but one day. This whole time, while Everett is wandering around Monument Valley in Kayenta, he constantly meets Navajos. Some sit on their horses and watch him as he cleans his pack of crushed watercolors. Some of them stop and talk to him. Some of them teach him some words. Some of them invite them into their hogan for a sing and some grub. Some of them tell him stories. Some of the Navajos steal his things and laugh when they get caught. I mean, it's pretty awesome. And it's important to remember later when he goes missing. Obviously, these Navajos, the residents of this land, would have seen him, certainly. On March 28, 1931, for his 17th birthday, Everett had a feast. A feast of food that his parents had mailed him. He then set off for the Tsegi Canyon, uh, Tsegi Canyon System in northern Arizona. And the place, the Tsegi, which is Navajo for canyon. The Tsegi Canyon, or Canyon Canyon System, houses the Navajo National Monument, 
and in that monument are the amazing ruins of Betatakan and Kiet Seal, among quite a few others. A lot more, actually. It's an incredibly interesting and beautiful place, which I have talked about in other episodes when I was talking about the Anasazi and their migration. The canyon features 600-foot-deep sandstone, quote-unquote, lordly canyons, with massive alcoves filled with an impressive ruins, a city almost. It's not even like a Pueblo, it's just like a massive city. In reality, though, almost every canyon in the system has Anasazi ruins. Back then, as you can imagine, this place was a veritable true wilderness. It won't be the first time Everett visits the area, but this visit won't be easy on the poor boy. The area was first discovered in 1895 by, yep, John and Richard Wetherill. Roberts writes of this discovery, quote, The Wetherill spent two seasons digging in the ruins, bringing back an immensely rich trove of artifacts, mummies, and skeletons that ultimately found their way to various museums. Betatakan, tucked away in a short side canyon, was first visited by Anglos only in 1909. The party that discovered it included a prominent archaeologist, Byron Cummings, and was guided by John Wetherill, who learned of the ruins' existence from a Navajo living near the mouth of Tsegi. It was natural then that John Wetherill would point Everett Ruiz to one of the landscapes he most cherished. End quote. Everett would head there in April of that year, 1931, and he camped there for two weeks. During his exploration, he found and sent home a shell from the Pacific that may have been part of a necklace, and also part of a human jawbone and uh, with complete with teeth that he found amongst the ruins. And Nagpra would have a field day with that one. After leaving the Tsegi Canyon system and arriving back in Kayinta, he'd write his friend Bill, and he'd say, quote, I feel very differently from the boy who left Hollywood two months ago, end quote. He'd also say to him, quote, These days away from the city have been the happiest of my life, I believe. It has all been a beautiful dream, sometimes tranquil, sometimes fantastic, and with enough pain and tragedy to make the delights possible by contrast. But the pain, too, has been unreal. The whole dream has been filled with warm and cool but perfect colors. End quote. We don't ever learn what this unreal pain was, but at least he recognized you gotta have the one to enjoy the other. In that same letter, he also wrote, Music has been in my heart all the time, and poetry in my thoughts. Alone on the open desert, I have made up and sung songs of wild, poignant, rejoicing, and transcendent melancholy. The world has seemed more beautiful to me than ever before. I have loved the red rocks. The twisted trees, the red sand blowing in the wind, the low, sunny clouds crossing the sky, the shafts of moonlight on my bed at night. I have been happy in my work, and I have exulted in my play. I have really lived. End quote. Oh, it makes me want to pause recording, pack up, and head there with my companion right now. Shortly after that letter... Everett finds and adopts a much-needed companion. He finds himself a res dog, and he names him Curly. If you haven't been to an American Indian reservation out west, then you haven't gotten to experience the phenomenon of res dogs, although you may have heard of the show. In 2017, on my first two-week trip out west, and my first 
truly ambitious one, I drove through, at midnight, the Chuska Mountains in the darkness and the snow, a feat I do not recommend for anyone, especially those without four-wheel drive. But I arrived at Canaan de Chez around midnight. As I was setting up my sleeping bag in the freezing air with the full moon floating above, I nearly leapt out my skin after noticing a dog had quietly ambled up behind me and had just sat down and was watching me. He really wanted to sleep in the bed of the truck with me, but I did not want all of his flea companions, so I kindly shooed him away. That night, I would hear coyotes and dogs playing or fighting or chasing one another or hares. Since then, I have seen hundreds of the ubiquitous critters scampering about the Navajo and Hopi nations and other nations. Res dogs are everywhere. There is a reservation. Everett would write to his brother Waldo about Curly and say this. He is a little roly-poly puppy with fluffy white hair and blue-brown patches on his head and near his tail. His eyes are blue and his nose is short. I found him last night, lost and squealing for help. When I stroked his fur in the darkness, electric sparks flew off. I haven't yet decided about his name, but may call him Curly because of his tail. When he is large enough, I am going to train him to go behind the burrow, occasionally nipping the donkey's heels so that we shall be able to go faster. End quote. Curly would stay with Everett for the next 13 months and would even learn to ride the burrow, as one picture of Everett shows. A few weeks later, Everett wrote to Waldo the following. I must pack my short life full of interesting events and creative activity. Philosophy and aesthetic contemplation are not enough. I intend to do everything possible to broaden my experiences and allow myself to reach the fullest development. Then, and before physical deterioration obtrudes, I shall go on some last wilderness trip to a place I have known and loved. I shall not return. End quote. Ominous. Foreboding words, those. At the end of this letter, he decides he's had enough with the pseudonym he's been using for the last three months or so, and he adopts an entirely new one. He tells Waldo in that same letter, quote, Once again, I have changed my name, this time to Evert Roulon. It is not as euphonious or unusual as Lan Remyo, but to those who knew me formerly, the name seemed an affectation. Evert Roulon can be spelled, pronounced, and remembered, and is fairly distinctive. I changed the donkey's name to Pegasus. End quote. Everett also admitted to Bill, his friend, that his last pseudonym was a little too Frenchy. From Cayenta, Everett's plans were as follows, and I quote After the Grand Canyon, Kaibab and Zion. I shall go south for the winter, perhaps pausing in Mesa, Arizona, where a friend has relations. After working in the cactus country of southern Arizona, I may go northward through New Mexico, Rocky Mountain Park, and Yellowstone to Glacier. At all events, I intend to spend a year or two in the open, working hard with my art. Then I shall wish for city life again and to see my old friends, if they still exist. End quote. That is one heck of a journey there, Everett. 
That would have been an unbelievable 1,700 miles to cross, whether he did it on foot or with his newly named Pegasus. Maybe that's why he named the burrow Pegasus, in the hopes that with the new name it would also sprout some wings. In this same letter to Waldo, he also lays out the plans for the next few years. A blueprint, if you will. It's interesting enough to read to y'all. After having lived intensely in the city for a while, it may not be in Hollywood, I feel that I must go to some foreign country. Europe makes no appeal to me as it is too civilized. Possibly some unfrequented place in the South Seas. Australia holds little allure for me now. Alaska is too cold and Mexico is largely barren, as is most of South America. Ecuador is an interesting place with its snow-capped volcanoes, jungles, and varied topography. As to ways and means, that problem will be solved somehow. He goes on to talk about his plans in art. It is my intention to accomplish something very definite in art. When I have a large collection of pictures, done as well as I can do them, then I am going to make a damn vicious stab at getting them exhibited and sold. If this fails... I'll give them away to friends and those who might appreciate them. End quote. The best laid plans and all that. Now, speaking of mice and men, that book had not yet even come out. It wouldn't come out until 1937, years after Everett's disappearance. But the phrase in question is from a 1785 poem by the Scot Robert Burns. That phrase goes, But mouse... You are not alone. Improving foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go oft awry and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. Rather fitting for our tale of Everus, really. The last two lines of the poem also work. And forward, though I cannot see, I guess and fear. So that letter to Waldo was actually full of other stuff including other ominous words like, quote, On all sides, people are being murdered, run over, are dying, and committing suicide. It may be our turn next. End quote. I believe he was talking about the area of the Southwest, but I'm really not sure. Regardless, it may be our turn next is not what you want to hear from your brother in a letter, but it is quite prescient. Everett would leave Kayenta in May and head towards Canyon de Chez. Like I just said, I have been there and it is amazing. My campsite lay near the rim of the South Canyon, which offers a perfect view of Spider Rock. But I did not know that. Despite the name of the campground being Spider Rock Campground. So at sunrise, like the excited golden retriever that I am, I woke up, packed all my stuff, said goodbye to the res dog who had slept near my truck, and sprinted off towards the White House Ruin Trail which is now frustratingly closed due to vandalism of cars at the trailhead, apparently. Uh, come on. Come on, guys. Anyways, despite that amazing hike, one of my top five, still to this day, actually. Uh, I mean, the amazing viewpoints are also just fantastic from that storied Canyon de Chez. The main thing, the thing I was most excited about seeing at Canyon de Chez was Spider Rock. I never did see that towering spire. I still ain't seen it either. Of Canyon de Chier, Roberts writes, quote, 
Only a month before Everett set out, on April 1, 1931, President Herbert Hoover had declared Canaan de Chez a national monument, in celebration of the Anasazi ruins, not of the Navajo presence. The people who lived in the canyon were never consulted about the governmental decree. If Everett was aware that the place had just been made a national monument, he did not mention the fact in his letters. Eighty years after Hoover's fiat, Canaan de Chez remains unique in the national park system. The only Parker monument devoted to prehistoric ruins but inhabited solely by Native Americans who endure the uneasy compromise of leading their private lives while tourists tramp and truck ride through their backyards. End quote. They may endure, but they also profit from these truck rides. And maybe the car vandalism is a ruse? No, certainly not. Although I do hope that they open that hike soon. After four days of traveling through the canyon, the ruins, and among the Navajo, he arrived at Chinle, which is the town at the mouth of the canyons, because there are two canyons. Once he'd arrived, he wasn't thrilled with the Navajos yet again. He wrote quite a scathing report I shall not repeat, for it is not necessary to the story, but he believed the Navajo had stolen quite a few things from him, and it irked him something fierce. From Chinle, he then headed to the northern canyon system of Canyon de Chez, which is called Canyon del Muerto. Like I said, there are two canyons at Canyon de Chez. Canyon del Muerto is the northern one, and that means Death Canyon. He spent nine days there, looking for Anasazi ruins and painting when he could. He wrote to Bill Jacobs, his friend, that he, quote, saw a goodly portion of the 1,200 cliff dwellings and made half a dozen paintings, end quote. So there are actually even more than 1,200 Anasazi sites in the canyon. He would go on to write, quote, Many of the ruins are well nigh inaccessible. End quote. That inaccessible fact won't stop him, though. Although it will try. And it still won't stop him in the future, either. At least until it may have stopped him altogether, permanently. He wrote, quote, I made a foolhardy ascent to one safely situated dwelling. Part of the time I had to snake my way along a horizontal cleft with half my body hanging out over the sheer precipice. End quote. So back in 2009, on that very first motorcycle trip I mentioned earlier when I was going to Colorado, my friend and I rock climbed a 700-foot cliff in the Colorado Rockies near Rifle. Back then, I was a competition-winning rock climber, believe it or not, and I climbed every day. I pretty much lived on the wall. I worked at the University of Oklahoma's rock wall, and I worked at a private gym briefly in Edmond, Oklahoma, where I set routes. I mean, I breathed and dreamed of rock climbing. I believe this route in Colorado, which was just off Highway 70 at a rest stop, I believe it is called Mudflap. And one of those mudflap girls, like, that are on the back of trucks was nailed to the start of the route. It was challenging due to its length, but not too technical. Regardless, it was very fun, but very tiring. And we didn't quite make it all the way up to the top. My friend was the lead climber the entire time, because I did not feel comfortable lead climbing. And so, that ate up all of his energy, naturally. On the way back down, though... While pulling the rope through the loops, it got stuck in a crack. The rope did. My friend, too tired to climb up and get the rope, understandably, 
since he had been lead the whole time. Well, he was too tired, and so I had to find a way up the rocks to get the rope unstuck. Of course, the rope got stuck on the crux, or the hardest part of the entire long climb. It is the only part where there was an overhang, or where the wall juts out above you instead of like vertically up or even at a very small angle. My hands are sweating just telling this story, y'all. So basically, free climbing without any rope to catch my fall, I climbed back over the lip, about 200 feet above the deck or the ground, the whole time just praying until I found the stuck rope and made my way just as difficultly down to my friend, who was taking a well-deserved nap at the lip where he was clipped in safely. I didn't blame him. I mean, you will never feel more grateful to be alive than after pulling yourself up over a lip 200 feet above the ground with absolutely nothing stopping you from falling seemingly forever. Once the climb was finished for Everett and he was at the ruin, he realized that it had indeed been rifled through by pot hunters or archaeologists or other adventurers like himself. Regardless, it was at these ruins that he made an incredible find, a truly remarkable discovery. He wrote about it saying, quote, One room, however, was rocked shut, and on opening it, I thought for a moment I saw a cliff dweller in his last resting place. But the blankets, though moldering with age, were factory made, and a Navajo baby was buried therein. Odd, because the Navajos are superstitious about the Mokwais, or the Anasazi. However, in sifting dirt in a corner, I found a cliff dweller's necklace, a thousand or so years old. About 250 beads, eight bone pendants, two turquoise beads, and one pendant of green turquoise. End quote. I mean, besides the grave robbery aspect of it, that is an incredible find. He would mail that Anasazi necklace home. Although no one is sure where it is now, unfortunately. About this burial, the Navajo seriously do avoid the Anasazi ruins, so that is indeed quite strange. Nearby, he also found an Anasazi baby's cradle, but he left that in place. Back in Chinle, he sold a painting for a dollar, which must have been enjoyable for him. I've only ever sold a handful of paintings, and each time it is a triumph. At one point, Everett laments to his brother that only artists are buying art. All the while, Everett's writing his parents with letters talking about his lack of funds and sarcastically writing budgets that include zero dollars for rent, electricity, and borough insurance. After Canaan de Shea, Everett made his way to the Hopi Mesas, where he was a little disappointed. Later, he changed his mind about the old villages, but this first time did not impress him. His next visit will... Truly be incredible, though. From the Hopi Mesas, he would head west with his burrow in the heat of early June in the Arizona desert. And near Cameron, that trading post with billboards galore, and it actually is a really good place to stop. At Cameron, he would run into some trouble. Roberts perfectly sums up what happened to our adventurer. On June 7th, Somewhere near the outpost of Cameron, a pair of teenage boys driving a pickup south toward Flagstaff encountered the loner with his burrow and his dog. One of them, Pad Jenks, 19 at the time, never forgot this chance meeting. In 2009, at the age of 97, he recounted it to a Tucson newspaper reporter. 
Jenks and his friend Tad Nichols were surprised to see, quote, a boy hunched over without a cap to protect him. He looked forlorn. He looked very sad. We stopped the car, Jenks went on, and got out and talked to him. He told us who he was. He was discouraged because he hadn't been able to sell his wood blocks. We asked him, do you want a drink of water? He misunderstood. Handed us his canteen. It was almost used up. I said to Tad, we're not leaving him out in the desert this way. We can't do that, end quote. The boys tied Everett's gear to the roof, unloaded the back of the pickup, and managed to coax Pegasus into the flatbed. They drove on to Jenks' family's Deer Water Ranch west of Flagstaff. I guess he stayed about a month, Jenks recalled in 2009. The actual stay, according to Everett's letters, was less than two weeks. But ranch life among the cool pines and aspens at 8,000 feet on the slopes of the San Francisco Peaks served to rejuvenate a badly depleted youth. End all quotes. I mean, the desert heat can truly sneak up on you. Always bring plenty of water, extra water. Or know where to get you some naturally. Of course, in his letter home, Everett totally played down the mishap. Although he did admit his burrow was in a bad way. He would write of Pegasus, quote, Peg is old and broken down, and his broken leg scrapes the other and bleeds. Though I gave him a couple of days rest, his back is sore. He is really only half a burrow. End quote. Broken leg? Bleeding everywhere? Poor Pegasus. In that same letter to Bill Jacobs, he also writes, quote, A host of misadventures have occurred, and while they were very unpleasant at the time of happening, I don't regret one of them now. End quote. That's often how adventures go. Great to retell, but harrowing in the moment sometimes. Like my rock climbing near disaster. Well, my hands are sweating again. At the Deerwater Ranch in the high country, he built fences, cut down trees, and helped with the chores. In between helping, though, he would hike the gorgeous San Francisco peaks, the place the Kachinas emerged from for the Hopi. He gave a painting to one of the boys that picked him up, Jenks, and as of 2009, he still had it. I'm sure he has passed on now and is adventuring with Everett and David Roberts and the Great Beyond. In December of that year, so around six months or so later, Everett would write to Jenks, Those were great days at your ranch, idyllic days. There I seemed to feel the true spirit of delight, the exaltation, the sense of being more than man, lying in the long, cool grass or on a flat-topped rock, looking up at the exquisitely curved, cleanly smooth aspen limbs, watching the slow clouds go by. I would close my eyes and feel a coolness on my cheek as the sun was covered, and then later, the warmth of the sun on my eyelids. And always, there was a soft rustling of aspen leaves, and a queer sense of remoteness, of feeling more beauty than I could ever portray or tell of. End quote. On June 20th, Everett left the ranch and headed to the Grand Canyon. But he had a nice six-day stop to chop wood and brand lambs. He said the camp was full of interesting characters and an abundance of burrows. One of those burrows became his, after he traded his shotgun for it. He would name this guy, Pericles, or Perry, for short. He wrote to his friend Bill, quote, The new burrow, though older than Pegasus, about 25, has four sound legs, a strong back, and is far handsomer. His ears are longer, too. End quote. 
Later, he'd write about Perry, quote, Perry is a constant source of amusement. Once he stepped into a tin can and made an undignified spectacle of himself before he freed his foot. When he was tied to a tree, he scratched his chin with his hind foot, but then the foot got caught in the rope and he hopped about on three legs for a while. End quote. Truthfully, the various burrows and horses he uses throughout his travels kind of become main characters and a source of entertainment, not only for himself, but also for us readers. And if you're wondering about Pegasus, he did leave the old broken-down burrow behind at this point. During his travels, he'd write, Everett would write of a curious sight he saw, and he told his family about it in June. The next day, I saw a weird thing. The dance of the tumbleweeds. A small whirlwind picked them up and tossed them in large circles. They would slowly float to earth and then bounce up again, around and around they went in fantastic spirals. End quote. By June 30th, five months into his amazing travels, he was camped at the south rim of the Grand Canyon. Everett, still amazingly, would be on the road for five and a half more months. Here's a letter. I throw my camps in all manner of places. I have slept under cedars, aspens, oaks, cottonwoods, pinyons, poplars, pines, maples, not the typical maple, and under the sky, clouded or starry. Right now, I am under cedars, with pines all around. Cedar bark is excellent tinder. Desert rats have told me a few camping secrets, but here and there I've gleaned some. I can take care of myself rather well now. End quote. He would spend five weeks in the Grand Canyon. Two on the south rim, two in the canyon, one on the north rim. Everett wrote, I followed obscure trails and revel in the rugged grandeur of the crags and in the mad, plunging glory of the Colorado River. Then, one sunset, I threw the pack on the burrow again and took the long, steep up trail. I traveled for several hours by starlight. A warm wind rushed down the side canyon, singing in the pinyons. Above, the blue night sky, powdered with stars. Beside, the rocks, breathing back to the air, the stored-up heat of the day. Below, the black void. Ahead, the burrow, cautiously picking his way over the barely discernible trail. Behind, a moving white blotch that was curly. End quote. During this time, at the Grand Canyon, he wrote that the temperature would reach 140 degrees. Now, that's not very likely, but, you know, it's not too far from exaggeration. 120 degrees Fahrenheit is the record for the Grand Canyon. I mean, it no doubt felt like 140. I have hiked down to Skeleton Point on South Kaibab multiple times. Every time I have started with many, many layers on, dodging ice and snow as I descended to watch the sunrise on that sacred spot for me. Then I began the ascent, and at regular intervals, I was shedding layers and just drinking liquids until I made it to the top. Every time, I'd be covered in sweat. And by the time I make it there, the pack is so full of coats and undershirts and my hat. All the water I brought is nearly drained as the sun beats down on the forever rocks of the canyon. So I know the heat at the Grand Canyon. And to alleviate this heat... Everett would go swimming in the violent and muddy red of the Colorado River. But one time, he swallowed an unhealthy amount of this soupy liquid. 
at Phantom Ranch, which is nestled at the bottom of the canyon, below the two trails of South Kaibab and Bright Angel, and where you can stay the night. You can recoup during the day and even post some letters from there. They send a mule train down there every morning, I believe, to pick up all the letters that people uh, post from there. Well, at Phantom Ranch, there's a suspension bridge, still up today, that allows you to cross the south side to the north or vice versa over the Colorado River. If you're coming from the south and the weather's right, you can head right on up to the north rim. Everett was wanting to cross this bridge, but Pericles' mule did not fancy the idea. Eventually, he wrote in a letter to Bill, quote, I finally banged him across with an old shovel, end quote. That'll do it. On August 1st, Everett cryptically wrote to Bill, quote, Recently, I had the most terrific physical experiences of my life, but recovery was rapid, end quote. And that's all we get. We'll never know what happened. In the meantime, his parents were writing to request they meet him in Arizona and bring him back, even if they had to bring his burrows. But he declined and said, quote, I have no craving for the city life, end quote. Amen, kid. From the North Rim, Everett traveled nine days toward Zion National Park. And that is some rough terrain and territory, to be sure. If you listen to the DNE Expedition episodes, I covered the land that I'm, he's going through now pretty extensively. It's right before the crossing of the Fathers. This is the Yunkarit Plateau and the Peak Sands and the Hurricane Cliffs. Everett wrote of Zion, quote, Zion Canyon is all I had hoped it would be, end quote. But that's really all we get from there. Except for this line about him possibly being a little tired of the vagabond life. To Bill Jacobs he wrote, quote, I write by firelight. The crest of the sandstone cliffs is bathed in moonlight. I know it is beautiful, but I can't feel the beauty, end quote. Some of this burnout was because he got a bad case of poison ivy, which he was very, very allergic to, like hospitalized twice in his life allergic to. To Bill, he wrote, quote, For six days I've been suffering from the semi-annual poison ivy case. My sufferings are far from over. For two days I couldn't tell whether I was dead or alive. I writhed and twisted in the heat, with swarms of ants and flies crawling over me. While the poison oozed and crusted on my face and arms and back, I ate nothing. There was nothing to do but suffer philosophically. He would go on to write later. I get it every time, Poison Ivy, but I refuse to be driven out of the woods. End quote. To be clear, he may have been confused on what caused Poison Ivy at this time in his life. He may have thought it was a seasonal allergy, although later he will understand that it is something that you get by touching the the nasty poisonous plant that irritates your skin at least we don't have the gimpy gimpy stinging tree which causes intense pain for weeks or months and makes you wish you were truly dead as it fills you with anguish and despair no thank you australia for this poison ivy affliction he'd actually secretly be hospitalized for eight days after the zion national park superintendent took him in Everett would fail to inform his parents about uh, that secret hospital stay. In one of the letters, he wrote of the hardship. Yesterday morning, I managed to pry my lips far enough apart to insert food. 
I thought my eyes would swell shut, but not so. Even now they are mere slits in the puffed flesh. End quote. Because of the pain and the lack of movement during this about dangerous ivy, Everett writes a rather reflective letter that is still discussed among the cult members today. It goes, quote, My friends have been few because I'm a freakish person, and few share my interests. My solitary tramps have been made alone because I can't find anyone congenial. You know it's better to go alone than with the person one wearies of soon. I've done things alone chiefly because I never found people who cared about the things I've cared for enough to suffer the attendant hardships. But a true companion halves the misery and doubles the joys. End quote. I don't have to imagine how lonely his travels are because for the first seven years of my travels through the American Southwest, I too traveled alone for weeks on end. Not months, mind you. Not ten months, certainly. It wasn't until 2020 that I started traveling with friends who shared my love of the great American outdoors. First was my Basque friend, and then my Belarusian friend, and then my French friend. And then finally my future wife. Despite the poison ivy, the lonesomeness, the heat, in a letter at the end of August that Everett wrote to his parents, he would say, quote, I expect to continue my wanderings for a year, more at least. My itinerary is planned and I have work to do, end quote. Gotta love the grit and determination of this kid. I mean, I've personally bailed on journeys before because of being lonely, because of the weather, because of being sick one time, and even because I just wasn't feeling it. Something was off. I mean, maybe I should have kept going, but it all worked out in the end. Ever just seems to be built different, honestly. Unlike Everett, though, I, I did have bills, and a dog, and a job, and friends, true friends, who wanted me back. There is something to his struggle with both wanting a companion and wanting the solo adventure. And this isn't the first time he's written about it, about wishing to share the trail. A few months before he wrote Bill, quote, I have had many sublime experiences which the presence of another person might well have prevented but there are others which the presence of a perceptive and appreciative friend might have made doubly worthwhile. End quote. Every adventurer has come to this same conclusion once or many times before. It's something I struggled with right up until I met my wife, or started traveling with my friends at least. Now the question is settled for me. The trail is no longer solo. You don't know what you're missing when traveling by yourself until you are with a true companion. At the end of that revealing letter I keep quoting from that he wrote to his friend Bill, he does mention that he will soon be reverting to his old name again. So maybe he knew his time on the trip was coming to an end. He just wasn't willing to accept it yet. Wasn't willing to acknowledge it. Because at this time he was still expecting to head down south from Zion as the weather began to turn. He intuited that southern Arizona and its cactus country would be warmer, and that's where he'd spend winter. Plus, as he said, he'd never been there before. I hear that. I can tell you, I've been to central and southern Arizona in December, January, February, and March. And while it does get cold, it is much nicer. One of those days, I was on the border of Mexico in 2020, driving from Tombstone, that famous town, driving from Tombstone to Coronado National Monument. It was March. 
very early March. The night before, a rainstorm with plenty of beautiful lightning swept through the desert, and I watched it from my motel, unwilling to get soaked by camping. The next morning was foggy, gloomy but winter picturesque with layers of thick, dark clouds, not just a gray overhang. I headed towards the tortilla curtain in the mountain where the monument is, and lo and behold, it was covered in snow on the Mexican border in Arizona. As I headed up the mountain, there was more of it, this this white snow stuff, and there was a lot of it. I was the only one there that morning, or so I thought. I hiked to the top of the lookout and took truly amazing pictures, a time-lapse video, and it was very cold, windy. Snow fell quickly and was swept down to the snoring floor below the mountain. Desert vegetation, like cacti, yucca, already alien-looking, were now white with snow. Even more extraterrestrial somehow. I couldn't say for certain where I was. (laughs) It seemed I could have been anywhere. The sun broke through the fog and highlighted the mountains. I snapped quite a few pictures. I'll put them up on the site. Returning to my truck, I was stopped by a voice coming from a small pavilion by the restrooms. He needed a ride to town, please. It was too cold and snowy to start his truck on the Arizona Trail that day. He was in shorts. He looked very unprepared. Kind of frail. His name was Butterfly. He didn't know how mountains were formed, it turned out. He did not like my gun, which sat in the center console. I should have hit it. At the gas station in town, he hinted he could go a little further. Maybe, please. But I replied, it had been fun. It had not. But it had been interesting. I rearranged the truck back to my liking after leaving him at the gas station, and off I headed towards Tucson. I felt I had repaid my hitchhiking debt. North near the Saguaros in Tucson, it would be 80 by the end of that day. Ever it was right to think it was warmer down south. Spending the winter down there was not a bad idea. At the same time, despite wanting to be out for another year, he had no funds, no money, not a lot of food. His parents graciously sent plenty of all of that to him, despite the raging of the Great Depression and their lack of funds as a family. He just could not continue to sustain himself. He was only 17. He was truly grateful to his parents for all that they'd sent, but by now he was solely dependent upon that gratitude, and he was expecting it to continue forever, it seemed like. Maybe he knew he couldn't do that to his parents. Roberts wrote of this conundrum, quote, The unabated affection in Everett's letters to his parents does not ring of cynical manipulation, as if he were posing as a dutiful son in order to keep up the flow of his allowance. The love sounds genuine. One must chalk up Everett's fending off his parents' attempts to control his life at the same time as he pleaded for supplies and cash to the sense of entitlement in which he had baked since childhood. At his most selfish, he treated his parents almost as though they were patrons committed to supporting a budding artist through thick and thin. End quote. But that certainly couldn't last indefinitely. He was truly and honestly attempting to make it on his own, but to quote him about the difficulty of making a living being an artist, he wrote, Not for God's sake, or yet for hell's sake, can I sell any of my paintings. The world does not want art. Only the artists do. End quote. 
He was indeed aware of the Great Depression, don't get me wrong. He constantly wrote about the poverty and lack of work in nearly every town he traveled through. Makes me a little shameful for complaining about the economy these days. We still have so much to complain about, I guess, but it's all relative. At the same time he was asking for money, he was refusing to go to college. It was not something he ever envisioned himself doing, despite his love of learning. But he he was not a classroom learner, really. He would write to his parents in September saying, quote, I studied the junior college pamphlet, and I don't feel enthusiastic. The place must be like a jail, with all the rules and regulations. What an anticlimax it would be after the free life. There was nothing in the art course that seemed worthwhile. End quote. You can't blame him. His parents, although disappointed, were still understanding. They would then ask him if he could send his journal home at least so they could read it, which had been tradition up to this point in their lives. But alas, Everett rebuffed them again and said he could not send it, for it was too personal for anyone but the author to read. He was becoming a man. With his own thoughts and dreams and feelings, unfortunately this journal has been lost like so many other treasures of this earth. And that story of how it becomes lost will be in the third episode of this series. It is frustrating. In early October, he is stranded on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And while there, he writes this to Bill. It's a long quote, but it's a really good one. For eight days, I traveled from Zion to the north rim, a distance of 150 miles by my route. If only you could have seen what I saw then. But you didn't, and as a picture is supposedly equal to a thousand words, I'll send you that when I reach the south rim. One of those sunsets will always linger in my memory. It was after a day of struggle, of violent hailstorms that beat down like a thousand whiplashes, and of ferocious, relentlessly battling winds. Then sunset, at my camp on a grassy spot in the sage. Far to the north and east, the purple mesas stretched, Cloud banks arched everywhere overhead, stretching in long lines to the horizons. There was an endless variety of cloud forms, like swirls of smoke, like puffballs. Here and there, where a sun shaft pierced a low-hung cloud bar, the mesas were golden brown and vermilion. Then the treeless western hills were rimmed with orange that faded to green and deep blue. A cold, clear breeze caressed me and the full moon rolled through the clouds, The lunatic quaver of a coyote. Silence and sleep. Winter is close at hand. The maples are crimson, and flurries of yellow aspen leaves swirl about with each breeze. On many hillsides, the yellow leaves have blackened, and the trees stand bare and silent. Soon the snows will be here, but I won't. End quote. I love that line. Soon the snows will be here, but I won't. Something he writes his brother at this time, uh, while at the North Rim, combined with his hauntingly good line, they leave something like the taste of sadness in the reader's mouth, because this is what he wrote to Waldo. Whatever I have suffered in the months past has been nothing compared with the beauty in which I have steeped my soul, so to speak. It has been a priceless experience, and I am glad it's not over. What I would have missed if I had ended everything last summer. End quote. Ended everything last summer. Ended how? Ended what? The wanderings, the adventuring, his life? 
This has become a famous passage to his devotees, to the cult members who suggest this ended everything last summer line is about his contemplation of suicide, and that his brother knew about this contemplation. This has influenced many people into believing he committed suicide less than three years later in the Utah desert. But I don't know. It is one of the pieces of the puzzle. Ended everything for that young man could have meant ended his journey and dream. Like of traveling or of being a vagabond. It meant he could have given up his lifestyle and chosen school and a career. I'm not convinced he was suicidal. But how could we ever know what the boy was really thinking? Also in that letter he quotes from this long lost journal, and it's beautiful. It's very well written. And it puts you right there where he is journeying in the southern Utah and northern Arizona high desert badlands and sandy canyons. I will not quote from it because it's long. And everyone should just read A Vagabond for Beauty. Or better yet, the combined letters and journey sequel to Vagabond. I mean, I will quote plenty of other stuff, but this will get a little long, so I can't quote everything I want to. But he did say this about the grandest of all canyons. Quote, Nothing anywhere can rival the Grand Canyon. End quote. I think sometimes I take it for granted that I've seen it so many times. But there is some truth to that statement. Before arriving at the north rim of the unrivaled grandest of canyons, it seems he ran into some trouble with a few hints that he had to sell or give away the old burrow Pericles, for he couldn't move his equipment further south at the moment. Plus, he mentions his clothes are in tatters. Maybe he had to pay that eight-day hospital bill. He then wrote home begging for money for real this time, and apparently for the first time. And it seems his parents dutifully sent it, this sending of money would lead to a month of bickering in his letters, though. And he can't blame his parents. With that money, Everett did buy two burrows in the Hispanic mining town of Superior, Arizona, after he caught a ride with tourists down below the Mogollon Rim. One of those tourists was six and a half feet tall, apparently. Roberts writes at this part of the journey, before acquiring his new burrows, however, Everett made his way to Mesa, Arizona, probably by hitching a ride with the Grand Canyon tourists. Today, a suburb of Phoenix, Mesa, even in 1931, was far from wilderness. After the solitary remoteness of the Tsegi, Canyon de Shea, the Grand Canyon, and backcountry Zion, southern Arizona must have seemed bland and civilized to the vagabond. End quote. The next two months are filled with small jaunts and excursions through the desert east of Phoenix. He was leaping goalies and avoiding cactus with his burrows. He was killing rattlesnakes and trying to sell his art. He does check out a place I plan on seeing in October of this year, 2023, called the Tonto Cliff Dwellings, or Tonto National Monument, as they're known today. He actually spent nine or ten days at the ruins. They were built by the Anasazi neighbors and cousins, the Salado culture, a people I talk about in previous episodes, in previous series, and a, pers- a group of people I will talk about again. They built the ruins above the Salt River, but what is today Lake Roosevelt? Everett also acquainted himself with some New Yorkers who convinced him to hire him as a guide and burrow packer for their three-day stint into the Four Peaks near Phoenix. 
They were looking for amethyst or some such mineral, apparently. He also sold some firewood to other tourists to make even more money. But that spark, that flair for adventure, that thirst for the wilderness, it just wasn't quenched by these small outings to make a book. But at least he was meeting cool people. He wrote to Bill about some of these people and said, quote, I have been meeting all types of people, artists, writers, hobos, cooks, cowmen, miners, bootleggers. The bootlegger said that as soon as he sold his stock on hand, he could offer me a job guarding his still in the mountains and packing barrels to the retreat. End quote. Alas, that awesome yet illegal job did not pan out, but it does get my novel gears turning. Nobody better steal my idea. During this time, he'd write his friend, quote, Bill, you don't know what you're missing. This life is the only one, and the only disagreeable thing has been the financial uncertainty, end quote. I could not agree more. I am begging. Is anyone listening willing to pay me to wander, photograph, and write about the American Southwest? Or willing to sponsor this humble little podcast? Stupid money just always gets in the way of, of dreams. I could easily go be a desert rat bum. Everett then had a Christmas card scheme with a local Arizona shopkeeper where he sent drawings home to his mom who made a block print and printed a thousand of them. But when she sent them to Everett, he only complained at the quality. It must have cost her a fortune for her to do that too. Especially at a time when the family was pinching pennies along with the rest of the nation. In the end, he probably sold only a handful of these cards. But I guess at least he tried. By now, he'd been out for ten whole months. Essentially, ever since he graduated high school. He'd sold some works, and he'd met artists who taught him some tips about his budding craft. But his dreams of making it as a vagabond, wanderer artist hadn't panned out yet. He'd write Bill around this time and say, quote, I am confident that I can make something of my work. The problem is how to keep alive until I have succeeded in a larger measure. My plan is to ramble about the Southwest with donkeys for a couple of years more, gathering plenty of material and mastering watercolor technique, then to get some windfall so I can work with oils and do things on a larger scale, perfect my field studies, and then do something with what I have, end quote. I mean, I love that he's got big dreams and goals. By the end of November, though, the steam and the money had run out. He was ready to go home. He asked Bill if he'd come pick him up in exchange for his everlasting gratitude and respect and his best painting. But Bill declined. Which will set a precedent for Bill letting Everett down. Actually, no, that precedent may have already been set because it seems that Bill also refused to meet him in the wilderness as they had planned. And he apparently bailed on a Christmas trip a year prior. Everett's patience with Bill was waning. But it was still saintly patience, really. And speaking of saintly patience, Everett's parents' saintly patience seems to have run out. And he may have sensed it. For by the end of December, Everett had hitchhiked back to L.A. He may have done so also on account of the approaching winter, a season that can be more punishing than summer, even in the desert. Everett had left his burrows, which he had named Cynthia and Percival, in Roosevelt, Arizona, with a local Apache man who promised to winter them warmly. But Everett did bring Curly back, the little white res dog, 
He brought him home to L.A. with him. On canyon trails when warm night winds blow, blowing and sighing gently through the star-tipped pines, musing, I walked behind my placid burrows, while water rushed and broke on painted rocks below, opening of a December 13, 1931 letter to Waldo. The last paragraph of the letter reads, Winter has set in. For days the sky wept. Drizzles and drenching downpours were accompanied by lightning and rainbows. Love from Everett. Although I hadn't planned on it, this is where I will end this first part of the tale of Everett Rubis. It is actually a perfect spot. But in the next episode, he will leave L.A. after only three months at home and adventure right back out to the American Southwest. He'll also head to the California Sierras again. And he'll spend some time in San Francisco where he'll continue to meet and rub shoulders with artists and even fall in love. His adventure, although he disappears at only 20 years old, is just beginning. Thanks for listening, y'all, and I will see you again soon in the American Southwest.